Good morning, everybody. Y'all show up next weekend, man. Think you missed the rapture or something. You'll have a scary, like, 10 to 15 seconds where you're just not sure, you know? You're just not sure. But I hope you guys have a great time. That's the way church should be in Oregon, I think. Outside, when you can, for the four days where, that, where it's possible, you know? Um, my name is Seth. I realize I haven't uh, met all of you here in the room. Uh, I'm the lead pastor of Grace City Church down in Corvallis, and if that name sounds familiar, as it should, uh, we're the sending church of, of y'all. So, um, and uh, a lot of the peoples here at one point in time were uh, involved down in Corvallis and either have returned home to Portland or made the transition up here to Portland. And uh, boy, this is really, really cool to see what God has done in the last few years. Um, just to give you guys just a kind of a brief thing, I know some of you guys care about what's going on in the kind of Grace City world. We have church obviously in Corvallis now and Eugene as well as Portland, and uh, things are going really well in Corvallis. We just finished up our school year, and so parking is now available in town, which is fantastic. We're loving that. Um, and uh, as far as Grace City Eugene goes, I don't know if you've ever had contact with uh, Pastor Chris or the team down there, but you guys, they just, uh, they're getting into their own building space here very, very shortly. Very excited. They've been in a community center, but they're actually getting a church building. Uh, not too dissimilar from this one, actually. It's a really, really cool building. It's a small Lutheran church, but it's a church that's closing. Um, and it was just a real God moment where God had really spoken to Pastor Chris. And it's a weird thing. He told uh, Pastor Chris, I want you to go ask this church for their building, which that's like, I don't know. I think there's a commandment against like coveting, <laughs> like, you know? <laughs> theft, you know? Is this a church mugging? Is this what this is? You know? Um, he told him to do it, though, so sure enough, he went, and it, you kind of want to slow play it sometimes, you know, just massage the situation, but he just, he was really honest with him. I said, I feel like this is what the Lord told me, so oh, there you go, you know? And I said, great, because we've been praying about someone the Lord would want us to give it to. So there's that, you know? <laughs> God is good. Um, so yeah, they're going to start meeting there in the mornings, and it looks like they'll actually be handing on ownership to, of the building to them here pretty shortly as well. So it's just really, really exciting. It's a really big step for them down there, and uh, it's kind of nice having our own little ecosystem here. Um, I came into Grace City as a college student in Corvallis going to school at Oregon State, and um, for the longest time, the idea of spiritual family, you had maybe friends or people that you knew across the body of Christ in different churches in town and so forth, but you felt relatively isolated. We are part of every nation churches, and we were kind of the only thing in the Northwest um, that was, was around. So you had to get on a pretty decent plane flight to get around anybody that was, was really a part of, of the kind of movement and the DNA that, of how you're trying to build. Um, but it's really awesome now to see kind of three churches that have uh, kind of sprung up on the I-5 corridor, and, uh, and we're believing God that he'll keep, keep doing some cool stuff uh, through us, Eugene, and you guys as well. Um, every time I come up here, it's always kind of fun, because I get to talk about Pastor Simon just briefly, which is, he's a fun guy to talk about. <laughs> you guys ever seen that Office episode where they go to the little uh, career fair, and uh, Michael's like totally just uh, says something really rude about Pam uh, to, to someone who comes up to their little booth, and uh, she just walks away just totally hurt and disgust, and then he turns around and says, like, you know, I would never say this to her face, but Pam is actually a very lovely person, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> why wouldn't you say that to her face? Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, so I would never say this to Simon's face, but he is a lovely leader. <laughs> 
he's, he's a great man. I just want to say that uh, how proud I am of you guys as a whole. There's so many leaders that have stepped up here, and Pastor Simon, it's just really fun to watch him step into Portland and do what he's done. I met Simon many years ago when we were both first starting out in ministry, and uh, let's just say he's come a long way since then. Um, I also got a chance to reconnect with him when he was over in London. I spoke for his congregation uh, when he was over there, and it was a really beautiful time connecting, but uh, even seeing the way he's just seamlessly transitioned here into Portland. I remember when uh, we, were had a, uh, uh, we had an elder meeting just prior to Simon was going to come for a visit. I'd, he, was, uh, he was back from Europe and didn't know exactly what he was going to do next. You know, he wanted to plant a church, wasn't positive where at that point. And so I invited him just because he was kind of on a break to come up. It was Oregon in the summer. I said, like, dude, there's no better place to be than here, you know? So come, come on up. We'll host you. We'll take care of you. We'll feed you some good food and, uh, and, all, and all the rest. And so he, uh, so he came up. And the day he was arriving, we actually had an elder meeting uh, earlier in that day. And as we were in that elder meeting, we had started praying about Portland. We really felt like that is something that God had placed on our heart. And we had multiple people that really had felt like they had heard some things, like we were supposed to do something in Portland. And so the elders were all together and like, you know, the one thing you need to plant a church in Portland is a church planner. And, uh, and I wasn't raising my hand to go, and no one in the room was raising their hand to go, and, uh, and we, but we sensed that there was still yet something to do. And I said, you know, there is this guy, Simon, who's going to come hang out for a few days, and he's looking to plant a church somewhere. And I just assumed he was going to plant in maybe Southern California or closer to where he was from. And I said, but, you know, maybe there's an outside chance. Maybe. And so we started praying for Simon. And instantly when we started praying for Simon, it's like everyone was looking, like making eye contact around the room, but no one wanted to be the first to say it. We all felt like we were supposed, Simon was the guy. We just all felt like Simon was the guy. Um, But again, like how do you introduce that conversation? Hey, God is good and we have a wonderful plan for your life. So uh, sure enough, uh, Simon and Shirley land at the Portland airport, and we picked them up, and my wife and I are having dinner with them, and uh, we said, so what do you think of Oregon? And their eyes just got really big, and they say, it is just like London, but on weed. Like, (laughs) (laughs) And from the moment the plane hit the tarmac, they said, we just couldn't shake this feeling like it felt like we came home. Never been here before. It felt like we're home. And I said, well, funny you should say that. And, uh, and now here you all are. Um, so it's just been an incredible journey to get here. I just want to, uh, I just want to even though Simon's not here, just really um, speak well of Simon and Shirley, their faith, their courage to do what they've done, to be here, and just the way that he's leading. It's just been really fun to watch. And thank you guys for the ways that you all are leading and serving and stepping up and, uh, and helping to make this church a really awesome place. It's, uh, it's really cool to be here for that. Um, but uh, all, that, all that aside, you guys, you already talked about some Jesus? Yeah. I like to talk about Jesus, if that's okay. Quite all right with you. Um, Jesus, you guys, you are in a series going through the gospel according to Mark, which is just epic. Wish I could do that just 24-7 pretty much. It is an amazing text, and uh, I've been, uh, I've been, I want to take and just continue on right from where you've been, so we're going to finish out chapter 12 here this morning, and I'm going to do something a little bit different than I normally do when I uh, preach through a text within the scriptures. Typically, there's kind of a rule of thumb that you don't want to just flood too much scripture into any given moment. 
Um, not because scripture is bad or, and, and more scripture isn't necessarily awesome, but um, you can just have so many ideas floating around that it's tough to rain, retain it. So there's this idea sometimes that less is more, better to actually understand and take away something important than to have 50 things that never really stuck. Um, but yeah, there's a beautiful thing that often happens in the Gospel of Mark, elsewhere in Scripture as well, for sure. The Scripture writers are just, just literary ninjas at this whole stuff, is that they layer their writings with all kinds of different meanings, and even the structure of the writing itself. So you can look at the words, you can look at the sentences, the paragraphs, and even the different chunks of the stories, and they're all pregnant with meaning. And so what I want to do is look at a little bit broader section of text. It's going to have what seems to be unrelated, just sort of pithy teachings and statements of Jesus about a few that appear to be random scenarios, but they're actually not at all. So where we're going to start is in uh, verse 28. Verse 28, Jesus in uh, chapter 12 and previous chapters has been asked a lot of questions. And this is kind of the culminating questions that has all been built up to. This is a relatively famous idea, if not a famous passage itself, because it's Jesus essentially summarizing the entirety of the Old Testament law and saying the life purpose of humanity. So here it goes. One of the teachers of the law came and heard him debating and noticing that Jesus had given a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important, over 600 commandments in the Old Testament, and there was a constant raging debate over which ones were heavier or lighter, was the language of the rabbis. In other words, which ones carry precedence over others? Because there are times when certain of God's commands actually come into conflict with others, and you have to figure out which ones might take priority. The classic example is if a donkey falls into a pit on a Sabbath. What do you do? There's a commandment not to work on the Sabbath, and there's also a commandment to actually take care of life and so forth. So if someone's in trouble, if your friend's in trouble, like, what do you actually do? Do you do work on a Sabbath to violate that commandment in order to actually fulfill the call, in order to, like, care for the things that God has actually called you to? And so the commandments constantly require conversation. And this is the one that, is an, that it would have been a very, very uh, popular one during Jesus' day. So which one is the most important, he asked. And here's Jesus' reply. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. As for one, he gave two. Love God and your neighbor. And then moving on from there, Jesus had been asked a variety of questions, building up to this one, and now it's Jesus' turn. And he's going to start flipping the script here, and now he's going to start introducing some of his questions. But I want you guys to see this as the pinnacle that everything has risen up to. That Jesus defines our life purpose as loving God and loving others. And the problem with that is not its power, its beauty, or its profundity. Is that a word, profundity? I just said it, so I'm pretty sure that it is. (laughs) It's not any of that. The problem with it is just how cliche it quickly becomes. When we say it's to love God and love others, we can just easily nod our head to it, say sure, without ever taking seriously what it actually means. That there is no higher command of God, there's no higher purpose of your life. You are not created as a worm just to worship a transcendent being. You're created to have a love relationship with your heavenly father. This is who you are. This is what you're made to do. Everything in life at the end of the day will boil back down to intimate, life-giving, self-giving relationships with God and others. 
This is what it's about. And in our world where we love to create a whole litany of issues that we can try to point our lives in the direction of, you will never, ever escape the white-knuckled grip of God that unflinchingly holds on to the standard by which all of our lives are meant to arise to and will be judged by. Are you in right relationship with God, actively giving and receiving love from him as well as your neighbor? If you are, I don't care if you're poor. I don't care if you're in jail. I don't care if you don't live in the right neighborhood. I don't care if you hate your job. I don't care if no life circumstance is good for you. I don't care if you just got diagnosed with something terrible. If you are loving God and others well, you are satisfying your divine purpose in this world. And I'm not saying that God has no desire or plans to upgrade your life circumstances or that he doesn't care about your discomfort or pain in any given moment. What I am saying is we quickly want to pursue circumstances rather than relationships. We'd rather have easier life than a well-related life. And this is the bar that Jesus lays. From this moment, he wants to have another conversation. While he was teaching the temple courts, he asked his question. He says, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared this. And then he quotes Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. Then how can he be his son? It seems arbitrary. It seems arbitrary to go from the idea of love. Now we're talking about some relatively, to us at least, obscure Old Testament passage, prophetic passage, where it says, the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now, what's confusing about that passage is Lord and Lord are two different words, but English translations uh, don't give us any help with this. A, because um, the first Lord is actually the proper name of God, Yahweh. The second is actually the word Adonai, which means Lord or Master. And so if you were to read this in the original text, it would be much more clear to you, but the English translators, out of a tradition of reverence for the name of God, typically choose to use Lord as like a pseudonym for Yahweh. So here we have God speaking to a master or a Lord, and David says, God is speaking to my Lord. God is speaking to my Lord, which is, stirs it up for Jesus to say, okay, 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 okay. If the Messiah, meaning the promised one to come who would be the true king of the world and who would put everything right, the one that God had promised way back from Genesis 3 that would deal with the problem of sin, deal with the problem of evil, deal with the problem of death. If this person to come, who everyone widely agrees is supposed to come out of the lineage of David, why is it that David says that someone who is his descendant is actually his own Lord? And so Jesus introduces the question. So who do you think this Messiah is? Is it simply a special person that God has just sent as a reiteration of like David 2.0? Or do you actually take David's word seriously when he says, yeah, whoever's coming after me is greater than me and he's actually above me. Jesus moves on from there. We're just, we'll come back to all this. Just planting all the seeds. As he taught, 
Jesus went on to say, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes, just like downtown Portland, just, and be greeted, and be greeted with respect in the food truck plazas. I think it works. In the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses. For a show, they make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. So Jesus talks about love. He talks about the Messiah being someone truly greater, unfathomably even than David was, who was the greatest as far as they were concerned. And then he begins to talk about teachers of the law, those who are wealthy, privileged, powerful religious leaders. And he speaks judgment over them, that they love the show, they love the outfits, they love the fashion, they love to be known and recognized, they love building their own brand and their own platform. They love being recognized everywhere they go. They love having a name that everyone else knows. And the responsibility they carry for having religious education and spiritual insight is simply used for their own egos. And in fact, the very people who are vulnerable amongst them, i.e. widows, are those that they're actually devouring, not helping. These people, he says, will be judged most severely. Now, before you move on from this, you have to dip into the deep discomfort of this. And you have to weigh considerably just how Jesus speaks about people who are on the religious insider team. And before we want to pass this off as those people back then, or that corrupt structure back then, or those people clearly who had issues then, you have to weigh and consider that there is no group of people in human history like modern Western Americans who have more spiritual knowledge and insight than any culture that's ever existed. Y'all can Google stuff that took thousands of years to develop. And it took an incredible amount of either wealth or travel to even access the kind of material that you and I can do with one little click. Aside from the spiritual resource of knowledge, insight, and wisdom, the podcast you can access. Got a problem with your life? Dude, there's an answer out there. If you haven't found it, you ain't looking. You with me on this? It's not hard. You might not find good answers, but there's plenty of them. Add on top of that, you guys, we're the wealthiest people that have ever existed in human history. Like we are. Not like the like people at the top of the Nike or Amazon or we are. We are. And so when you hear Jesus critique those who are having spiritual assets and monetary wealth consumed with image in their brand and their platform. I don't think we're taking a far leap to think this might apply possibly to us. And Jesus says, they've taken all these good things and they've actually used it not to bless those that God would call them to, not to bless the vulnerable or the weak, but simply used it for themselves. They will be punished most severely. If I'm being honest, I, uh, I was talking with uh, Casey 
because I sent my, uh, I sent my slides pretty late last night. Uh, I was not procrastinating. Well, I was kind of procrastinating, but here's why. I didn't want to include this part of the passage. I want to talk about love, and I want to talk about the stuff that's come after this, which is totally dope, but I didn't want to talk about this. And there was, if I'm being totally honest, there's one reason why. Not because it doesn't matter deeply to the flow of thought we're going to connect here in a moment, because I know it's talking about me. I'm really good at identifying your problems. I see them so clearly, you guys. So clearly. Every pastor has a plan for your life. I could fix you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just if you'd let me. <clears throat> I know it's talking to me. I know that Jesus is challenging what feels very normal to me and not just calling me to a sense of condemnation or guilt over what I have, but challenging me about what I'm going to do with it. And I know uh, I've spent ridiculous amounts of money and have accumulated way too many degrees to not say that I, I am not among those people that possess incredible wealth of both knowledge and wisdom and relationships that God has brought in my life. It's an incredible privilege. But we cannot take lightly what that is actually for. It's not for me. It's not for us and watch where Jesus goes next with this. He speaks about how these people, these wealthy, affluent rulers, wealthy, affluent, spiritual rulers, devour widows' houses, and the next thing he talks about is a widow. Jesus then sat down, done speaking for the moment, sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. A, I love that Jesus people watches. It's an amazing thing to do. Portland's probably the best place to do it <laughs> that I've ever been. It's pretty, it's pretty good. Um, you'll, you, ne you literally never know what you will see. Now, people, Jesus people watches here, but check this. He's watching people give. Y'all do this really low key. Eh, there's a box in the back. You can text. Like, you can just text your best friend. Hey, how's it going? Just sitting in church, thinking about you. Click. And you say, oh, I just texted that 6635 whatever to push pay. Totally just to my type. You could fake it. Jesus is staring at them as they give. What if Jesus has walked in during giving time and just looked over your shoulder on your phones as you're about to do push pay? It's slightly awkward. And as he's watching this scene play out, at the temple treasury, there were at least 13 different receptacles for people to make their giving to. And the law specified exactly what they had to give and what categories based on what kind of income they had or what kind of sacrifice or gift that they were trying to make. It was actually relatively complicated. And so there would have been religious leaders in that place that you could come and consult with. And they could, like, okay, here's my deal. I made this. Here's what I got. Here's, what I, here's the offering I'm making. Here's what I want to do. And they would tell you, okay, give this much here. Give that much to that one. Now, there would have been at least one receptacle that was more or less just kind of a miscellaneous, just kind of a free will, like, whatever. And as you're sitting in this court, you would know who the wealthy people are. 
because the conversations are happening live and loud. And people are walking into that moment, and if they know that they're throwing down some Skrills and want to, Skrills is a little dated, I realize that, but I still like it, so we're going to be okay with it for now. (laughs) If they're going to throw down some money, they're announcing to everyone in the world exactly how much money they're throwing down. And along in this scene comes along a widow who bypasses, doesn't need any of these people because she doesn't have that much to give. A poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, the equivalent of just like a few pennies. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus having surveyed this whole scene and probably tons of interesting things like, ooh, look at that real estate transaction. That dude, ooh, that's a nice little chunk of change. Ooh, that guy's making money doing what again? That's great. That's it. There's, of all the things happening in that moment, he calls the disciples to him and says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. And if you were to look at that Greek phrase, all she had to live on, you could literally paraphrase it as she put in her whole life. Watch this. Jesus reaches the pinnacle of all these questions to say, yeah, it is all about a radical love of God and others. And then he starts talking about, Mark arranges it, so we see like, then the conversation goes to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who is the Messiah actually? Is he just another special person or is he something more? And then he goes into talking about these wealthy rulers who don't give anything and just consume and devour everything. And then he talks about a widow who gives away her whole life. And you start connecting the dots, and you see we have three characters in this little frame. Jesus, the wealthy rulers, and the widow. Jesus, the wealthy, selfish, devouring, wealthy rulers, and the self-giving widow. And when you look at this passage, there's something that it says about Jesus, and I believe it's, there's something that it says to us. Number one. What it says about Jesus is you can connect all three of those dots through him. He's not a wealthy ruler, he's the wealthy ruler. He's the wealthy ruler that even the greatest wealthiest ruler says of him, this is my Lord, I'm under him, he's greater than me. Jesus is the wealthiest, as in like he made everything, therefore he owns everything. And ruler, not just in terms of he's a middle manager, but in terms of he has all authority in heaven and earth. All wealth, all authority. And yet, unlike these religious rulers, he didn't devour anything. He came to give everything. He is the wealthy ruler that gave like the widow. He took both of these two categories, smashed them together and said, this is me. This is me. I'm the fulfillment of all these jokers are supposed to be, but are far from. And I'm the heartbeat of this widow, what she's giving. But let's be really honest for a moment. What is she giving? Not much. It's her whole life. But what are those few pennies going to build? 
fund. How many wells is that going to dig? Not much. Jesus is the upgrade. He's the upgrade in every category who gives away his whole life and everything that he gives away does not devour us, it devours our sin. It devours our death. It devours evil. Because he gave his whole life away. So it's fascinating to me that he looks at this woman and says like, yep, she gets it. And he says this, she gave more. She gave more. But did she though? I get it. It's like the millennial participation trophy. You know what I mean? Everybody wins. You know what I mean? It's the moral victory. You know what I mean? You ever look on YouTube if you're ever just needing a good cry, you know? And you see like those videos of just like, you know, the, like the, like, like a basketball team and like they put in like their, uh, with their water boy or like their equipment manager. At the, you know what I mean? And then he gets in at the end of the game and everyone cheers when he just makes a layup or something like that. And they all go crazy. Yeah, it's great. That's all he got for the year. It wasn't much, but everyone treats it like it is. But Jesus said she gave more because she gave all. Now think about how she gave. Think about what this says to us for a second. Lady didn't have much, but she had two coins. Now why two? Think about that for a second. Why two? If she gave one, what would you say about her? If she gave one and kept one, what would you say about her? Generous or not generous? Dude, how many of y'all give them 50% of your income? If you raise your hand, I've got a great church in Corvallis. I'd love to invite you to. (laughs) Told you I got a plan for your life. No, no, no. But let's be real for a sec. Someone gives half, half of their life wealth. What do you say about them? (laughs) Dude, that's amazing. Who does that? She could have given half of everything she owned and likely received an amount of praise and satisfaction from it. Substantial. But the choice was between being a generous hero and giving everything. And she chose everything. And there's something about that that attracted Jesus to her. She gave more. She gave more. Because this whole thing was always about love. This whole thing was always about love. And the whole time you have Jesus on display showing you what love actually looks like, embodied and enfleshed, not abstract. And the entirety of his life is a self-giving radical action, not just presenting abstract teachings and ideas and philosophies but building up to the very suffering and sacrifice of his life. And unless you think it's just the cross that, that is the moment of his suffering and sacrifice, this began from day one for him. Born in an animal feeding trough, under abject poverty, grinding oppression, fatherless from an early age, despised by local community, disowned even by his own family. He knew suffering He knew what it was to be misunderstood, to be backstabbed, to be held down, to have the boot on his neck. He knew all of it. All of it. The cross was the pinnacle, but I promise you it wasn't the beginning. 
And the love of God is not just defined by a happy feeling he has about you when you happen to come to his thoughts. The love of God is the sacrifice, the outpouring of himself for your well-being that knows no limits, that doesn't say, I know how I can do something very generous for them, hand away half of my power and possessions to them, but rather than sending a special someone to come and be a great leader for us, he sends himself, comes entirely in his own presence, and doesn't withhold anything from us, but gives everything to us. And the radical self-giving love of God as expressed in Jesus Christ is the very hope that we have to find life not only now, but eternal. I can see why he dug this widow. But more than just pointing to Jesus, there's actually something it needs to say to us. I'm really happy Simon's not here for this. It took me almost, almost 10 years to have frank conversations with my people about giving. I was terrified. Because somewhere in the South, there's a pastor that has his own private jet, and some, for some reason, I feel like every time I even subtly hint of a lifestyle of generosity, that somehow it's just gonna all go sideways. You know what changed for me? Many years ago, we uh, did a reverse offering, a reverse offering. So we passed the plates, like offering plates, but rather than ask anyone to give anything to it, we had a bunch of envelopes within it. And all the envelopes contained money, cash, cash money. Varying denominations of money, some was, like the lowest ones were like $5, several with 10 or 20, and the highest one I think had $500 in it. And, uh, we wanted to, to, we were really struggling as a church. We wanted to increase the generosity of our people, but we wanted to start by giving them the joy of giving. And so the only stipulation was they took the money and they only had agreed to was to give it to someone else. And uh, at the time, there was a single mom going to our church. She'd been through a pretty rough situation and our financial situation was really rough. She didn't have any financial support from the father of any kind. <clears throat> she was really just scraping by. And when she pulled out the envelope, she pulled out 100 bucks. That ain't nothing. <clears throat> and she sat in the back of the church for a good 10 or 15 minutes after the service. You know that moment where you're like, I know what I'm supposed to do with this, but I know what I want to do with this. You know that moment? It's like that moment when you're staring at the brownie and you're like, I know I shouldn't have you, but I really want you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or like at 2 a.m. when the countdown on Netflix is going, I know I shouldn't watch another episode of you, but if I just delay my decision making long enough, the countdown will solve itself and I'll be... <laughs> She sat in the back row, just wrestling with, oh God, I have so many bills this could pay, and I need this. Wait a minute, wait a minute. And then you rationalize it, don't you? You rationalize it, she, and she, she told me after the fact, she told me, and then I started rationalizing it because like, wait a minute, this was supposed to bless people in need. 
I'm in need. This was supposed to be for me. They would want me to bless me. This would be, this would be better if I just kept it for me. And she just went back and forth, back, back and forth. Finally, she resolved in her heart, nope, I'm not, I'm gonna bless someone else. Ugh, God, you stink. <laughs> this is mean. Before she walked out the door of the church, another woman in the church had also received $100. And she had also been sitting in the back row on the other side of the church praying, God, what do you want me to do? And there was only one face that came to her mind. And so as a single mom walked out of the church, a lady came up to her and says, like, you know, I don't know what this means to you or what you've got going on in your life, but your face was the only face I could see when I asked God what he wanted me to do and handed her $100. Turns out, when Jesus said, blessed, it's more blessed to give than to receive, he means it so much that he would hold fast to a single mom in poverty. Give, and it will be given unto you. I got you. But if you don't learn how to let go of the fear and the worry and the anxiety and the control, you're not going to survive anywhere in your life, let alone financially. And God in that moment stamped her. And from that moment, she started tithing. Tithing just means 10%, giving 10%. She didn't have 10%, but she gave it. And she told me, she says, Seth, I know you're nice and everything. Please don't ever, ever think you shouldn't challenge people like me or in my situation not to give because it's more, you're withholding blessing from me. Please don't. There's a beautiful thing in giving and generously giving. And when I watch, when I watch people do so, I watch their lives change. It says in the Gospel of Luke that wherever your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And I know when Jesus asks us to give, practically, specifically, even monetarily, I'll promise you he's asking for your money, but he's not really wanting your money. He's wanting your heart, your heart. And when your heart bleeds for something, you spend money on that something. If all you care about your image, it'll be tanning and working out. If all you care about your diet, it's just the right groceries from whatever new season. Like if all you care about is golf, it's just the latest clubs. If it's hunting, it's having the latest scope. It's like whatever you care about, that's, that's where your treasure reflects. And if the kingdom of God matters to you, the people of Jesus matter to you. If God's hope for this city matters to you, which is his church, I want to encourage you that when Jesus said our greatest life purpose was to love God and our neighbors ourselves, do not let that remain abstract. Let your love, just like Jesus and just like this widow, let it cost you something. Let it cost you something. And you think it's going to take something away from you and watch what he'll do with it. You know it's the only area of scripture where God says, you can test me in this. Go ahead, test me. Give away, watch what I do. We don't give to get back and sometimes we don't get back, but sometimes we do. 
And even when you give away, maybe it's not materially that you get back, but watch what he'll do in your heart. I know, I know that especially in my generation and younger, giving to church is not sexy. We like giving to causes and organizations that are, that feel like they're doing, they're digging the well or they're meeting the homeless need or they're feeding like whatever and they're, I get, I get that sexy. But if God's people don't care about his church, who else do we expect to? Who else? One of the things the scripture says is that if you do not care for your own family, you're worse than an unbeliever. I think there's something that matters when you say, this is my home. This is my family. These are my people. And no, it's not sexy to pay for the lights to stay on. And no, it's not like sexy to pay, you know what I mean, for just the administration costs or the internet utility. or like That stuff is not fun, but it's what families do. It's what families require in order to have a living room space like this to be together, in order to have a platform, in order to proclaim the gospel for people to hear it and encounter it, in order to create leadership structures so that you can be equipped to go and make a difference in your lives wherever you go. I want to encourage you, do not let your love be abstract. And the more you allow yourself to even sow financially into a place like this, watch what he'll do in you. This isn't about guilt, and I have not mentioned one amount or percentage. But all I know, all I know, is that when it becomes a priority, and when it starts to bite a little, meaning you give enough where it's like, yeah, I could really start doing something with that. When it, as soon as it hits into that sacrificial nerve, that's when you know you're there. That's when you know you're there. My father desires that you would trust him more than you presently do. He desires that you would trust him in every area of your life. And we love to think that our finances exist in some other category, and I can trust him everywhere and kind of manage the money thing as I want. But Jesus talked about money so much. A, not because he needs it, doesn't need a dollar of it. Pastor Simon does. He deserves to not raise his kids in poverty and have them resent the ministry because the church he served faithfully and grew could not financially support him back. That's a thing. Jesus doesn't need your money to advance his kingdom, but you need your heart aligned with his kingdom, and that means all of you. And so wherever that means to start, just start. Jump in. And let this be a place. What I'm so thankful for, for the previous generations, my parents' generation and before, is they cared about the local church. They cared about it in a way that I'm not sure my generation does. But it's a beautiful thing when we do. It's amazing things that you can do together. And there you are, you are in so many beautiful ways, the hope that this city needs. Don't neglect don't neglect the beautiful worship and love of this widow. And I know that Jesus isn't here looking over our shoulder, but he's here. And he's not looking to condemn. But I promise you, when he sees that childlike trust offering the lack or the little, the couple pennies that we're all like, yeah, that doesn't matter. He's like, nope, no, 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 no. It's not equal amount. It's about sacrifice. That's what's beautiful to him. It's beautiful to him. It's how he lived. He gave away him, his whole self. He's asking for it in return. Let's pray. 
Father, Father, it's easy to ignore your word. It's easy just to uh, move past it without taking it seriously. But God, I want to thank you for just the beautiful portrayal of your son in this passage. As the wealthy ruler that did not devour the weak and the poor and the sinners. God, I thank you that he is that widow that gave it all, his whole life for us. And Father, I'm asking that the well of gratitude would just grow and grow and grow on the inside of us. God, help us not only to appreciate Jesus more, but God, I'm asking you would even build a desire to be more like Jesus as well. So God, help us to be faithful with whatever we have, our time, our money, our abilities. If it's little, let us be faithful with little. If it's much, let us be faithful with much. Father, we want to please you in the way this widow did. We want to honor you and love you the way this widow did. Thank you for that in Jesus' name. We're going to close out in worship and open up communion. So if you'd like to honor Christ's giving away of his life for you, you can do that through communion. We spend a little bit of time to reflect and worship. You're now listening to Grace City Portland.